Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Hi, and welcome to the inaugural episode of Never Mind the Ballots. My name's Esme Ashcroft. I'm the political editor for Bristol Post slash Bristol Live. And remember, you can follow us at Ballots Podcast on Twitter. You can also rate, review and most importantly, subscribe via Apple Podcast or any other podcast provider. So on this week's show, we have Bristol City Council Cabinet Member for Housing, Paul Smith, and former Bristol Mayor, George Ferguson. The topics we discuss include council housing, high rise buildings in Bristol, and of course, the contentious Metro bus service. I think you're all going to really enjoy the podcast. And without further ado, let's kick off. Paul, if you can tell us a little bit about the story which you're bringing to the podcast today. Yeah, so my story is the 100 years of building council estates. In 1919, something called the Addison Act, the Housing and Planning Act was passed, which provided funding for councils to build estates. I mean, councils had been building housing. The first council house in Bristol was built in 1905. A hundred years ago this month, the council agreed to buy land in Hillfield, Seamills and Bedminster to build council housing estates when the war finished. And so it was the beginning of mass council housing development in Bristol and in, in the country as a whole. And we're gearing up to celebrate those hundred years. I mean, the story of council housing has, has been a, a sort of traumatic one in, in recent decades, as we've seen it marginalised. But we've act- actually, council housing played a huge role in this city. And I think this is an opportunity to celebrate the role that council housing played in Bristol. And I'm linking up with people from other parts of the country so that we do it in terms of its its contribution to the country as a whole. And also to look forward, council housing is being built again. Councils, half of councils have set up or setting up housing companies. And so it's about not just looking back, but also looking forward. And so am I correct in saying that these, the first kind of four areas identified were Hillfield, Seamills, Bedminster and Hallfield, is that correct? That's right. And yes. at that point, they, they were looking to buy it for around £28,000. Yes, it was, you know, <laughs> obviously, you know, the value of money has changed since then. But, uh, you know, even after the Second World War, when places like Hartcliffe were compulsory purchased outside of the of the city boundary, land, because it was agricultural land, land values were, were very cheap and it was easy for councils to buy up huge tracts of land and then redraw their, their boundaries. And unfortunately, we can't do that anymore. Mm. Um, which may drive us to discuss uh, George's topic on on higher density and taller buildings. But so, in terms of of Bristol, can you give us a a kind of an overview of how council housing has been mapped over the past one hundred years? Obviously, we had a big, intense increase after first and second world wars. Mm. But what kind of happened afterwards in in the later kind of fifties, those decades? Well, it, I mean, there, as you say, there were big particularly big council house developments in the 30s and into the into the 50s the level of development into the 60s and 70s reduced there was some addition of on some of those 50s estates adding tower blocks in the center of bristol but as we come into the into the sort of thatcher era the government made it very very difficult for councils to build they saw housing associations as being the new development agencies really restricted council funding, introduced right to buy with a discount. Right to buy already existed and was being operated in Bristol before uh, the 1980 Housing Act. But we we had a peak in in the early 1980s. About a third of the housing in Bristol was council housing, whereas now it's 13%. So whereas council housing was a fairly standard form of tenancy, mainly for, I guess, what you would call the respectable working class – the era we're in now is that to access council housing, you have to 
be able to demonstrate that you've got all sorts of problems in your life, whether it's a severe mental health problem, uh, very desperate homelessness situation, physical health problems, domestic violence. It's very difficult for, you know, just people who are on low incomes to access council housing. So it, it has been marginalised since the late 70s, early 80s, as, as instead of being a tenure of choice, it's been a tenure of last resort. And I think we want to change that. We want to, mm. we want to see with new council housing being built, how we can go back to a situation where, where council housing is a tenure of choice and is realistically available for people who haven't got any problems. They're just on lower incomes. Mm. Can you pinpoint a specific period or, or decade when there was a realisation that we have not built enough to meet the demand? It's when we come into the 1990s that there are quite a few uh, reports and reviews that said at that time we should be building 200, 250,000 homes a year. There wasn't enough being done, particularly in terms of uh, social housing. And unfortunately, neither cons- Conservative governments ideologi- ideologically were not particularly in favour, and that's very clear in Nick Clegg's recollection of being in the coalition. But also, for some reason, which escapes me, the the Labour period, particularly under Tony Blair, mm. was also not in favour of building the council housing. And council housing started to revive after the crash. Uh, Gordon Brown saw it as one of the ways of trying to stimulate the economy. But it was, it was still at a very, very low level. And the Housing Association development programmes never really filled the gap and were very dependent on government grant funds which started very high in the early 90s, but then fell away. I mean, I've worked in housing for nearly 30 years. Those of us who've been in the sector have been banging away quite tediously about the need for more uh, social housing. We're now on the verge of the government producing a housing green paper, which, you know, the whole sector is very excited about because we we feel that there is a need for a renaissance of uh, social housing development, but also a bit of trepidation in the the government has just produced a draft of its planning guidance and social housing has been written out of it. So we're not, we're not entirely sure uh, where things are going. But in Bristol, there certainly is an increase in development in uh, council housing in particular and social housing more generally. We're setting up a housing company to take forward sites uh, that we own. We're targeting early on places like Lockleys and also... Uh, central Bristol sites for the housing company, but also looking at how it might be involved in the Hengrove Park development in in South Bristol. So I think it's it's um, quite readily acknowledged by the council that there is an issue, there is a blockage with social housing. I think in one of the papers it says people who are applying to be added to the Bristol Housing Register are told from the outset it's highly unlikely that they will be offered a council property because the waiting list is so long. And even people with the greatest need often wait several years. Fewer than 2,000 social housing properties become available annually in the city and over 8,500 households are currently registered. Mm-hmm. Do you think it's fair to say, or it's not over-egging the pudding to say that we are in a, in a crisis at the moment in Bristol, mm-hmm. a housing crisis? I, I think for some people there's a crisis. Not for ev- there isn't a cri- housing crisis uh, for everybody. And the, the most extreme part of that crisis is people living on streets, in tents, in vans and other things, because that's the, the only thing that they can, they, they can access. I mean, the figures, uh, last year's figures, the number of people or households on the list is over 11,000. And the, the number of lettings in that year was only 1,800. So it's fallen uh, to a new low level because people are finding it more difficult to move. And so we get less, mm. less turnaround in the, in the council housing stock, which mainly drives that. In terms of our expectations, in terms of, you know, a lot of how, new housing starting on site, we hope to get that figure up to 3,000 a year. And that then means that people in great need won't have to wait anywhere near so long, but also we can start opening up the housing, the social housing that's available to people who aren't necessarily in the greatest need. And especially if we can sustain at that level of, of 3,000 lettings a year, which is, is very much what we're, what we're aiming at. Is social housing the answer, though, for Bristol's housing issues? 
It's not the whole answer, but it's it's part of the answer. I mean, we need housing at every, at every level. And there are also some new types of housing coming into the market, which I, I hope will disrupt parts of it as well. The, the build-to-rent sector, where housing is built for private sector rent, which I'm hoping will compete with some of the poor quality private rented housing in Bristol, maybe force standards up, but maybe even have the effect of maybe of suppressing rents. Because what we've seen is that housing that used to be available for people on benefits is now chasing the market of young professionals. If the build to rent market provides something for those young professionals so that they're not heading into the market that used to provide for people on benefits, hopefully more people on benefits will also be able to access uh, the private rented sector, which we're doing a lot of work to improve the the quality of at, at the moment. So, you know, the biggest reason for people coming to us as homeless is they've been evicted by a private landlord. And it's, it's because uh, people with money are being forced further down the housing chain, forcing the people on the lowest incomes out altogether as landlords can get much higher rents from chasing that different market. So we need more housing for sale. We need more housing for rent. It's not just social housing. So the housing research that sits behind the joint spatial plan for the three author- for the four authorities um, in the sort of west of England says that we need about 35% of all new housing should be uh, social rented or affordable in, in some way, which means that 65% doesn't need to be. Um, and I, I think that's right. We, 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 the housing crisis is not just solved by building council housing. But if you look at the history, you will see that the only time in which home ownership was affordable is when there was also lots of affordable rented housing as well, and that there were, there were more choices in the market for people. What role does central government have to play in the increase in council housing? I mean, I think before we've spoken about a a particular formula which Mm. Bristol City Council and councils across the country have in terms of funding. Can you remind us or tell our listeners about that? Well, central government plays a huge role because they set the infrastructure, the, the funding system within which council housing can be built. So every council has been given a notional amount of debt that they have or notional limits how much they can borrow. Nearly every council's at that limit. And so we can't borrow more money to build council housing. So if they lifted that borrowing cap or had had a borrowing system which related to our revenue stream, which is how housing associations operate, then we would be able to borrow more and to build more and building housing pays for itself over time. The, the second thing is, is that we, we, we are taking money in from the right to buy. We're, only, we're not allowed to fund more than 30% of a property from the right to buy money. We have to find the other 70% from elsewhere, but not from any sort of government grant or funding. So that means we can, we can either get it from borrowing, which I've already said we can't borrow extra money, or from our rents. Our rents are incredibly low. Um, and falling at the moment, the government forcing us to cut our rents each year. So the government has set up a system which makes us it almost impossible for us to build council housing. Now they've promised that they're going to raise the borrowing cap on high demand areas, of which Bristol must be one, and also that they're going to bring in more flexibility on the use of right to buy receipts, because also we have to spend them within three years or return them to government. It's almost like the government have said, we'll set up a system that makes it impossible for you to spend this money so that we get it rather than you. If they if they relax those two things, that in itself would make uh, quite a big difference to our ability to build without actually costing anything in the sense that, you know, it wouldn't cost the taxpayers of Bristol an extra penny to do those things. In the meantime, we are, uh, the, the reason for setting the housing company is that the general fund of the council can borrow money. hasn't It has got a borrowing cap, but it's higher. It can borrow money to invest in new in new housing, which is why you know so many councils across the country, including Bristol, have either set up or setting up these housing companies because it allows them to access uh, that that revenue. But ultimately, if councils could borrow from their housing revenue accounts, they wouldn't need to set up yet another company to do that. So. 
it, Bristol's effectively going to end up with Bristol Council going to have three housing departments: the council housing department, which is called the HRA Housing Revenue Account. It's going to have a development uh, company within the uh, general fund, the council tax funded part of the council, and also it will need a housing management company within the general fund to manage properties built by the general fund because they can't put into the council housing department without the council housing department buying them. It can't buy them because it can't borrow the money to buy properties either. So, you know, we're having to create, and all councils are, creating these huge bureaucracies and inefficiencies just to get round what are quite ridiculous Byzantine funding systems. Now, George, you've been nodding a lot. Can you... Give me a flavour of how you feel about the state of council housing and social housing in Bristol. Well, first of all, I celebrate the fact that Bristol has had 100 years of council housing. I agree with absolutely every word that Paul has said. I think uh, what's interesting is Chris, Christopher Addison, who brought in the Housing and Planning Act, was uh, he was an old-fashioned politician. He was a Liberal who turned Labour. But mm. uh, what was really interesting about him is that he came in out of a passion for health and health and housing were the same subject. And I think we've sometimes forgotten that. It isn't about just chasing numbers. It is about making healthy cities. I think that the faults we've made is sometimes just through chasing numbers without thinking about the quality of what we're doing. And even some of those really lovely estates that were built uh, following between the wars, following the First World War, and it's taken wars twice for us to realise that we need social housing to the extent we do. Even those estates have had real setbacks in, in that the, they've become just housing estates. They've not been places, they've not been communities, they've not been villages, they've not had proper access to affordable transport or to uh, the facilities you would expect to be able to uh, just walk and find in your neighbourhood because they've been relatively low density, which probably will take, I will refer to later on. I think Bristol has a particular crisis because we are a wealthy city. Because we're a wealthy city and it's an attractive city, property prices are particularly high. And interestingly, when I became mayor, we hadn't built a single council house for over 30 years. And I'm I'm passionate believer in not just council housing, but uh, but but in social housing, and I, ask- I believe councils have a duty to provide decent housing, particularly for those who cannot afford it. Can I ask how many council houses were built under your mayoralship? Well, only a small number, but we got it going again, and they were family houses in particular. And uh, you know, I'm delighted that Paul's grasping this and taking what we started. Also, I started the setting up of a of a housing company, which he's now done or is doing. I think we're pushing absolutely in the same direction. And uh, I think that maybe the only difference in emphasis, and it's probably not even a difference, is about quality versus quantity. Because nobody thanks us. And we made big, big faults with PRC, which were concrete built houses that then had to be demolished or had an awful lot of money spent on them. We made big faults with some of the high buildings, some of which had to be demolished or have caused a lot of social problems. Um, I think nobody thanks us for meeting the numbers if that's not sustainable in the long term. So quality first is certainly my my agenda. With the suggestion being that perhaps the Labour administration's emphasis isn't on quality. No, no, not at all. I think, you know, I know Paul is passionate about producing quality houses. I think there's a debate to be had of what we do with the desperate short-term needs. And uh, I think one could have a very long conversation about whether whether it's acceptable to have something interim that is not complete, perfect housing. I think that we need an investigation and a discussion about that because, you know, people on the streets is just simply not acceptable and it doesn't get any better. So when one's talking about container housing, it mustn't turn into a medium or long-term thing. It must be a very short-term thing. So I think there are conversations to be had about that. But when we're building permanent housing, which we've got to do, it's the quality isn't just about the quality of the build or the quality of the house or the quality of the flat. The quality is about the quality of the place and uh, the neighbourhood, the 
ability to be able to go and buy a pint of milk or catch a bus to the to the school or walk to the school or whatever it may be. I mean, that's why I'm passionate about cities, why I talk about cities all over the world. And I use Bristol as an example because we are a city of villages. I think we've got to reinforce that city of villages history. Housing, which actually is a terrible term, it's homes, you know, housing sounds like a sort of commodity. But yeah, you know, people's homes, every individual one really matters to that person. They are the, the basis of all communities. And Paul, how would you come back to that? I mean, I think there's perhaps sometimes been a slightly negative stereotype of big kind of suites of council estates and things like that. But am I correct in thinking that that's not kind of the aim of this current administration? No, it's in fact, absolutely the opposite is is the aim in terms of on, on existing councillors, what are often called council estates, probably not the best phrase for them. It, we are trying to introduce a greater variety of housing. I think the problem was that they, they were often built as a sort of single cultural offer and a single housing offer very often. And that's why we've got some, you know, big housing for sale being built in Noel West at, at the moment. Why in Southmead we've got some house, we've got on this, uh, a sort of small estate being built, which, I mean, George was involved in at the beginning, which is a mixture of housing for sale, shared ownership, social rent, affordable rent uh, and private rent. Tenure blind uh, among uh, 160 uh, units. And I'm looking, for instance, at building council housing in locations where we haven't got much council housing at the moment which you wouldn't do if you were just looking at what's the cheapest thing to do. I mean, that gets me fewer numbers in some respects through building in more expensive areas because the land's more expensive. But for me, this issue of balanced communities is really important. Now, I I agree with what George says about the importance of place, but communities are not about buildings. Communities are about the people who live with them, the way that they interact, the, the way in which they relate to the place and having you know George said a lot of these places didn't have a community actually a lot of them got really strong sense of community I grew up in one of them yes it was built too low density yes all the facility or most of the facilities that were planned were never built or were built very very late and when the economy went bad those areas suffered incredibly not because of the quality of the housing or even the quality of the urban design but because of the lack of jobs for the people who, li- who lived in those areas, which which un- which undermined the economics of those areas. Community is about people. What we want to see is actually the, the early vision for council housing. When uh, Bevan was talking about, again, a minister for housing and health, uh, when he was talking about council estates, he was saying it was somewhere where everyone would live. The doctor would live, the lawyer would live alongside, you know, the, the, the workers that they would be mixed communities. That that over the last 30 years really has been lost, that yeah, council housing yeah. is mm. a housing of last resort for the most desperate. Whereas actually those estates should be mixed communities, balanced communities. And I think coupled with George's issues around the quality of the buildings, the quality of the place is also introducing these these balanced communities as well. Yeah, but some of those communities felt quite isolated, didn't they? Oh, because they were built out, you know, I'm not just talking about Hartcliffe, but Hillfields and mm. and even Sea Mills, you know, really actually some of them really good quality places, mm. but uh, they were they were marked. That's a council housing estate, mm. which I think is mm. is wrong and uh, and mm. I think Paul's addressing mm. that. And they did feel that they didn't have access to the facilities that we all like to enjoy. The purpose of living in a city is to have access to all the facilities. Mm. And uh, if you're living in a a housing estate that hasn't got the facilities because it's very low density, um, Mm. then uh, because, you know, you can't support a shop if you've not got a lot of people living there, um, then you, you are deprived and that you know you 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 couldn't really find a, a sort of a divide between me and George on that I think and mm-hmm. but y- y- what you when you look at those places it wasn't the quality of the housing that was a problem no, the quality no, no. of the housing particularly the Absolutely. interwar housing and if we're talking about the Addison Act housing was incredibly high quality particularly for its time but even mm-hmm. now I mean a lot of it's been sold and the right mm-hmm. to buy uh, very attract a very attractive housing often in really nice settings um, but 
you can't look at the housing without looking at the, the sort of socioeconomic issues mm. as, as well. And, you know, initially council housing, as I said, was, was for um, the working poor. And in fact, council housing was more expensive than private rented housing when it, when it was first yeah. built. Some it people had because, to leave it because, it, because they couldn't it was afford asp- it. Because yeah. it was aspirational. Mm. Yeah. Um, but, you know, we had a real problem, I think, in the 50s where we went f- or the country went for the cheapest type of housing, system-built housing, which was structurally unsound, a lot of it, mm-hmm. which, which, was a re- which is a real problem. But George is absolutely right. You know, pla- places like the one where I grew up, the density was incredibly low. And what happened is you m- into that area moved lots and lots of families. So, you, you know, typically, you know, two parents, two adults and two children. So you had, you had actually quite a big population, but as the children left home, uh, the population of those areas declined massively and therefore the viability of shops, of garages, of pubs, the viability of churches and community organisations also fell away. And so you had a whole uh, sort of the, the social and economic infrastructure of those areas collapsed for demographic reasons. Um, which the density of the housing was played a role in, but was not the only thing that played a role. Let's see if there's something we can disagree about, but probably <laughs> not even on this. <laughs> I mean, I think I, I am not an advocate of right to buy. I think it's been a, a terrible destroyer of our social housing fabric. Um, of course, there have been some winners on it, but I think society has lost and our social housing has diminished, council housing has diminished ever since uh, the 1980s as a result, largely as a result of right to buy. And I think it was the reason why Bristol just simply didn't build any housing for 30 years. And, you know, and, and it was pointed out to me when I started building council houses, these will be nice houses. They'll be bought within five years. I, I think there's a five-year period that, they're, they're safe. So that's a disincentive on us to, to build. I would just simply get rid of the right to buy and recognise that social housing is social housing and that it should be part of broader communities, mixed communities, and not identified as, as a state. So maybe the, the one good thing about right to buy is that it's, it's broken down a bit of that strong division, but I would definitely get rid of it now. Right, right to buy... in in housing terms has been a complete disaster. Um, Bristol's lost about half of its housing stock through, the, through mm. the right to buy. Now you could say, well, the housing's still there, but what we're increasingly seeing is a, is a new trend. We're seeing it on the, on many of the estates in Bristol is when the properties become empty, they've been bought up by, by to let landlords and rented out two, three times the rent of the council property next door. And without the repairs program or the support that was there. So the idea that basically it was just people would buy their homes and invest in them themselves. I think it started that way to a certain extent, but now we're seeing that completely breaking down as well. And we're increasingly seeing the sort of council, what was council housing just become private renting and being used for profiteering for people who aren't interested actually investing in it. But the right to buy itself never changed the demographic of estates. It changed the ownership status, but it was the same people living there. Mm. And what we need to do was to get balanced communities is change the demographics of, yeah. of those estates, yeah. which is why, you know, I think that, for instance, the development that's started in Noel West is, is so important because it's bringing in some high quality new housing, which will, I think, bring in a wider range of people to that area. And if you if you go to Philwood Broadway, which is one of the two main shopping centres in Noel West, actually most of the shops aren't really shops. They're advice centres or mm. offices or, or other things because that community can't sustain that shopping area. We need people in those areas who can do that. We also obviously need the people who live in those areas to be more wealthy. You know, we need, we need to get good quality jobs for for those people. And, you know, I, I've just come out of a meeting where, you know, I desperately need more surveyors within the housing department so that we can get more work done. You can get more repairs done and, and more improvements to the housing stock. We, we can't recruit them. At the same time, there's lots of people in Bristol without jobs. And we need, we need the programmes that train mm. people up because mm. they would have come from areas like that before so that they can actually 
earn quite good money doing the really important work. And one of the, the threats to our programme of house building is the lack of skilled people in the in in the in the country in general. In Bristol, we, we might Brexit might mean that we lose a lot of really skilled people as well, uh, returning, say, to Poland or or other countries. And we've got Hinkley Point on our doorstep, which is sucking huge amount of construction skills uh, out of the area. We've got a real demand for people to gain those skills. And also, you know, once they've got them, they'll be earning good money. And to stay with housing, I'm going to ask George and I to introduce his his topic, which he's brought along. Could you tell us a little bit about what you're bringing to the podcast? Well, high buildings. And there was an architect, a Bristol architect uh, in the post last week uh, advocating that we should have more high buildings and that the skyline of Bristol hasn't changed since she was last year, 20 years ago. I'm an architect and uh, I was uh, president of the of, of the RIBA, so I was leader of our profession. But I do think that architects sometimes like high buildings because they get into magazines. You know, they, they, they're dramatic and they're, they're good commissions. But they should be the exception rather than the rule. And I think there's a danger that by advocating high buildings, every property developer starts... Uh, seeing pound signs and they think oh well we can put a high building on our site now um i think it should be absolutely the other way around and that we should choose as a community where high buildings go if at all and i say if at all we should uh, regard them absolutely as an extreme exception because this is both an architectural historical and, more importantly, social and health issue. There have been numerous studies done, and I'm on the editorial board of a magazine called Cities and Health, and uh, I've been reviewing some of the papers there, and the most recent one I've reviewed is about high buildings in Melbourne in Australia, private uh, developments, private uh, uh, apartments, and the situation for parents bringing children up in those high buildings that they've chosen to live in. You know, the, there is clearly, not just from that small piece of research, but if you take the breadth of research, it adds to people's stress, it adds to isolation because it's what happens on the ground is what really matters in community terms. But it's not just the people who live in them it adds to the stress of the people who walk around areas with high buildings as well. They feel less, you know, that it's less of a human scale. So I, I think there's a terrible tendency to equate high density, which we need, and that's what we've been discussing about housing, and high buildings, which we don't need, um, that have a lot of physical problems as well. You know, I mean... You know, Grenfell is a is an extreme example, and I don't want to get into the whole issue of Grenfell, but that is, hopefully is a, a real one-off, an extreme and very devastatingly sad example. Closer to the ground is good for people. High density is good for communities. Higher densities than we've got, say 50 people to the acre, is a, a sensible sort of density. You can do that with the streets, of, I mean, where's the highest density residential development in Bristol? Clifton. Where's the highest values? Clifton. Why? Because that high density produces the sort of facilities that people want in an elegant way with streets that people feel provide something for their community. And so I'm saying that let's not say no to absolutely every idea every possibility of a high building but let's regard it as an absolute exception and stop equating high buildings with St Mary Redcliffe you know those are pieces of sculpture that's something quite different I mean the second highest building in Bristol I think is the University Tower and that's a magnificent a magnificent building um, as architectural students we used to think it was awful but I love it now you know what we tend to do when we build high buildings is build something really really bland so 
The council has just run its urban living spatial planning design consultation, catchy, um, where it identified seven particular pockets of Bristol which might be appropriate for taller buildings. And these include um, Lawrence Hill, Old Market, land adjacent to Castle Park, so the former ambulance station, North Redcliffe, Temple Quarter, Bemster Green and Newfoundland Way. What do you think about the appropriateness of those sites? Well, I think there's a danger in nominating sites like that. The ambulance station site, I think, it somehow grew without me noticing. I mean, it was going to be, I think, eight storeys and 12 storeys, and now it's 28-storey proposal. People might think it looks a bit better than the Castle Mead concrete building that's at the end of Castle Park, but I've heard Paul slate that building, which is nobody loves anymore. But when it went up, people, oh, this is a great, brave, new, high building, you know. And these things date, and what we might think is possible now can become awfully depressing later on and even once it's you know just after it's built so i think uh and they're very very expensive they're not sustainable people talk about high buildings being more sustainable sometimes uh because they're bringing more people to a point site and that they might be producing uh you know very high levels of of uh, insulation or something, but you can do all that and more at a, with, with street buildings. And I'm talking, I mean, I've just uh, come through Baltic Wharf on my way here. There is a high density development, maximum of six stories. It produces streets. It produces really wonderful atmosphere. Uh, you can't get much higher density development than that without going super high um, because it's it's tight it it creates amenable spaces so i'm saying it's a bit simplistic to call for high buildings as some sort of answer to uh, a housing crisis so there's also um quite a active campaign against tall buildings in bristol and one of the suggestions which um they have put forward is following some historic uh, towns in Europe, such as Munich and Toulouse and Copenhagen, where they have high-rise buildings on on the kind of the outer ring. What what do you think about that suggestion? I don't see the point of it. I just think that I mean, if you look at great European cities, Barcelona doesn't have very many high buildings; it has a few. But the high density of Barcelona, which is probably I don't know five, six, seven times as dense as Bristol, is based on largely around six-storey buildings. The high density of Paris, which is also of a very high density, except for its edges, doesn't have... It's got two-point high buildings, which were very controversial at the time. I, th- I think that good European cities are made up of streets and squares and, and parks. Bristol's very well off for its parks. We, you know, That's another reason why we need high density when we do develop. But let's, let's stop people saying in the same sentence that high buildings are high density. Um, it is, it is uh, an illusion and, um, and they're certainly not high quality in terms of, of community. So you're saying that we can achieve high density with medium-sized buildings? Yeah, and we can retain our historic uh, skyline. Edinburgh, I think, was the first place that I noticed in Europe in the 70s, I think, who uh, commissioned a high buildings uh, study. And it was a very thorough high buildings study. And if there is any city in the UK of which I'm envious of its skyline is Edinburgh, because they recognised that this wasn't just a social issue. I mean, they were looking from a, uh, a landscape, urbanscape, townscape issue, that high buildings would have made what is absolutely wonderful place that enriches people's lives. Um, there may be other reasons why you get depressed in Edinburgh, but <laughs> but uh, certainly it is not because of the architecture and the streets and the spaces and the, the, the places that are, and, the, and the delicacy of the skyline and the topography, which Bristol shares all that, which gets often destroyed by high buildings. So why do you think Marvin has put forward this idea then? Well, you brought Marvin into the conversation. I well, was, I was the relating. Labour administration, <laughs> yeah. because it's part um, of their I think, consultation. Um, 
I'm an architect. I spend my life thinking about this. And occasionally you might uh, get attracted to the idea of a high building project. But I just dug out an article because I was um, speaking on um, Radio Bristol this morning uh, uh, about um, the demolition of the warehouses, the bonded warehouse in, in Cannons Marsh. I dug out an article from the Post that was a kick up the dockside, it was called, and where I'd just been to the States and thinking about how we could learn lessons from the States for the development of the city docks. And I said, the one negative lesson we can learn is the damage of high buildings. I particularly cited Trump Tower, funnily enough, which in 1988 was not as famous as it would be now. I think that it's something that I've spent my life thinking about and studying. And I do understand that there is, uh, yeah, there's a bit of an attraction. I don't agree with Marvin. It doesn't mean that I think that he's entirely wrong, but I don't agree with him that high buildings are something that cities should aspire to. What I think cities should aspire to is individuality, is distinction, and the danger is we just become like anywhere else. Now, Paul, if I can bring you into this, your opinions on, <laughs> on tall buildings. Yes. What are they? Well, I mean, firstly, in terms of the consultation, the consultation is not the consultation on tall buildings. It's the consultation on urban living. On the- and most of that is about increasing the density of low-density areas. Um, and there's an amazing project in, in Noah West, which is looking at how you can turn streets and streets to semi-detached housing, maybe in something that's more like a terrace. Because as George says, the most popular areas of Bristol actually are terraced rather than semi-detached, places like Clifton and Southfield, Easton. You know, they're, 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 they're rich communities. So the thing about, firstly, to say urban living is not about tall buildings. What the consultation poses is there may be some central parts of Bristol where actually the only thing you can fit in on sites really are are tall buildings. I mean, there's one site, I won't name it, that was put to me that we could possibly build four houses on or you could build um, higher and get something like 100. And well, obviously not houses, but whilst streets of terraces as has got to be sort of the popular choice if you've got a sort of blank sheet of paper. Bristol is not a blank sheet of paper. Lots of it is built already. There are small infill sites which may never be developed. There's also some fantastic central area parks that you don't want people to build on, which is you, which would increase the density of the city, yes, but in a very, very negative way. So I think, you know, I, I've got a site on Broadweir opposite the... Um, Harvey Nicks Tower, um, which you could only really build at all, build it on there or not build at all in terms of making something happen. But I think I think what's really, really important is where it is decided to build tall buildings. What's really, really important is what does it feel like on the ground level? There are some parts of Bristol where you think no thought at all has been given to what it's like on the ground level, the sort of the stuff that was built in places like Rupert Street years ago, which just created a concrete canyon. More recently, the Temple Quarter, where there's, you wouldn't say there's anything, you look at the buildings, each individual on their own, you say that building's fine, but the environment around them is so poor. There's a nice little bit by where the Valentine's Bridge is, but the rest of it is a very foreboding, Mm. sterile location. And it's because they haven't really thought through what's happening at the ground floor level. What does it feel to walk there? And I think that's a mistake that's been made in the past in Bristol with a lot of the taller buildings that have been built is that people haven't thought about what does it feel as a person walking through it. I, I had to go to um, Canary Wharf recently and I must I, I had to walk through Canary Wharf and I first I found it quite difficult to know which bit of the tube I had to get out of. And then it was actually quite confusing to find my way around. You know, lots of tall buildings, lots of construction going on, so lots of pathways blocked over where a new development was happening. It was it was quite confusing. I think it's really important that the that the the ground floor, the place where people walk and where people spend a lot of time, is welcoming and friendly and safe. And I don't think we've done that well in Bristol Would you in the past. Advocate having a kind of I don't know, 
I've heard the term fusion living kind of banded around where you have the lower levels open to kind of retail or cafes and things like that, and then having the housing above. I I, I think you we do need that sort of... Because and I, presumably... I know that's been advocated by George in the past would, as well. That and, would allow the kind of yeah. the more communal areas yeah. I mean, to I be like, a I little quite, bit more I mean, inviting. it's not particularly high. Or not, not much of it is high, but Brindley Place in Birmingham... Mm. Uh, where I go year after year because there's lots of uh, events held in the ICC there. And that's a really nice place to walk around. And you don't necessarily notice how tall some of the buildings are there because because the spaces are done well. And it comes back to the point George was making about it's not just about the buildings, it's about the place and the setting. Absolutely. Um, I mean, I think that the another sad issue is that high buildings in effect become gated communities. And because they, you know, sort of by their nature, they are gated communities, whether they're in public ownership or private ownership. I think I'd, I would like to come back to about Paul's particular site that he identifies uh, near Broadmead um, on the corner of, of Castle Park, because funnily enough, the council wanted to plant a load of trees on that site. And I said, no, I think that that is a potential site for development. I saw it as... Uh, retail with other uses above, and it might have been uh, a mixed-use development. But I think that would work at, say, six storeys. I don't think it has to be a... Uh, it doesn't have to be a high tower in order to work on that site. And, and when you go above six storeys, you get into much higher costs. So then you've got to go yet higher to make it to make it work. So I think it's about finding the sweet spot, and people do talk in this... In, in this industry in terms of research on uh, what works and what doesn't. Mm. There is a sort of sweet spot on the height of buildings and the level of density of an area that works for people, for people's mental health, um, against the uh, sort of architectural call for um, let's do something dramatic. Mm. I mean, would, would the council, through its housing company, consider a taller building? I don't think we're particularly looking at us building high-rise buildings as as a council. I've got fifty-nine what are considered to be tower blocks already to mm-hmm. to deal with. But I mean, the you know, in in the main, it's it's uh, build-to-rent providers that are interested in, and also, I mean, we've got student housing as well. But don't get me started on that. Um, another podcast for another day. Why not? But sort of build to rent providers, so it's private rent of which there would be affordable housing in as well, where this taller building proposals tend to be centred around, and it tends to be around central Bristol locations, and and about saying if we're going to build some commercial buildings in an area, then why not put some residential above them. And then, as George says, there's, there are economics which drive particular heights. I mean, I think between 14 and 16 storeys is something that's quite liked by the industry because if they go higher than that, there are all sorts of additional costs. If they go lower than that, then they haven't got as many units and therefore the return on investment isn't as great. So, unfortunately, economics quite often drives this, as it did in, the, in terms of council house building. And, and I have to say... The way in which council house building was done in the 60s and 70s, where they build a tower block in a sort of desert of land and then another tower block. In those instances, you probably would have got more housing if you just built terraces. And in some in some local authorities, they've actually achieved that. Hume in Manchester is an example where by taking down the towers, they've actually got as much housing through building terraces. Absolutely. So tall buildings is not a panacea. To anything, I think you know the issue we have as a city is that our boundaries haven't changed since the fifties. The green belt hasn't changed dramatically since the fifties, but the population of Bristol has increased by about two hundred thousand people since then. And so there is an issue about how do we accommodate the ever growth of the city? We're growing at between six and eight thousand people a year. If we can't take further land. So some of that can be done through the sort of densification that, that George has talked about, but but certainly not all of it. Yeah, but we need to think of the metropolitan area, don't we? I mean, we have an artificial boundary on this city. Yeah. Uh, I don't mean that we need to advocate uh, sprawl, 
by any means, but we've got a sort of city north of Bristol that is all that sort of Bradley Stoke area mm. and everywhere. And Potentially that, with an arena? <laughs> no, we'll, we'll leave the arena for another day. Uh, but the arena needs to be somewhere in the middle of Bristol and I know exactly where. But um, this cannot be just Bristol isol- looking at this in an isolated way. I mean, I got into some political trouble by suggesting that uh, we should look at Newport, for instance, speed up the trains to Newport because the property was uh, getting on for half the price in Newport that it was in Bristol. Therefore, I was trying to tip all the poor people to Newport. Well, that's not what I was doing at all. But we just need to think out of the box. If we can't solve it all within Bristol, we have to work with our neighbours to try and uh, to, to solve the, the, uh, the, the problem about shortage of homes. And that's, and, well, that's one of the great advantages yeah. of the joint spatial plan. Mm. I mean, it is. I think, yeah. you know, there can be lots of criticisms of the plan yeah. alongside the transport strategy that, that delivers it. But one of the things that's been accepted by the three authorities around Bristol, I think for the first time explicitly agreed, is that not all of Bristol's housing needs can be met in Bristol. I mean, I think South Gloucestershire have been particularly good in terms of promoting housing development, although not always linked to good transport networks. And, and transport is transport's absolutely key. And that's but, the key, but, isn't it? North, North Somerset has been more difficult in accepting that, that this is the sort of growth of Bristol. And the, uh, but there is an agreement around social plan also that you know Bristol will be able to nominate from its waiting list into those other local authorities in developments close to Bristol I think I think that's that's a huge significant step forward that's been made not just by Bristol but by all by all four of us in actually managing to reach an agreement on that but what what's critical I mean what the issue is George has touched on it more than once is you've got to have good transport infra- public transport infrastructure mm. to su- mm. to support that and i know you mm. want to move yeah. on I was to, going to, to say, that in, yeah. in, in yeah. an issue but yeah. but for for instance you know new developments outside of bristol does still need to be focused where there are good transport routes into bristol you could argue at the moment there are no good transport routes into bristol well, at the well, moment places like portishead head. <laughs> <laughs> Well, yeah. opening up the Porter's headline yeah. is a complete no-brainer. It Absolute makes no so brainer. much, yeah. so much great sense. In fact, the development, the council housing development we're doing at Ashton, we could have built more housing, but we've left space so that a station, station. can be built yes. there. Yeah. yeah, that opening up that line is, you know, absolutely got to be something that it's needs got to, to be happen. Done. Yeah. It was meant to happen last year. Mm, phase one. It's meant mm. to happen last year for about twenty years. That's it? right. Yeah. yeah. Talking of transport, I have to lead us on to our third and final topic, which is the Metro bus. So we are recording on Tuesday, um, the official launch date of M3 from Emerson's Green into the city centre. Now, George, I know that the Metro bus project predates you or predates your your term. Eight years it predates. (laughs) But you, I guess the perception is that it is a project very much linked with you. I mean, how do you feel about that? And how do you feel the project has gone? Well, of course, when you're mayor, you're to blame for everything, whether you initiate <laughs> it or not. <laughs> that that yeah. applies to us all. Yeah. Um, I think uh, it, was the, it was the least worst or the, the best option available. And the worst thing I could have done is to have disrupted it more than I did. I did disrupt it in that I made some changes uh, because to I the thought routes. that... To the routes. And especially the one that went through the historic harbour and over Prince Street Bridge, which would never have happened. I mean, I've talked to engineers since that, you know, now they realise that wouldn't have happened. So it was lucky that I did disrupt it to that extent. So I, I you know, my, my mucky fingers are on the, are on the project. Uh, I talked to James Freeman, who's the MD of First Bus this morning, because we were both on we were both up at seven o'clock this morning. I wasn't on the on the route. He had just come off it. And he said it absolutely met all his expectations. He was delighted. He said it was a bit like being on a tram, uh, in that you are free of in that you are free of the traffic, in that it was not disrupted by the traffic. So let's call let's think of it. If you can think of it as a trackless tram, then you've got something that will help transform uh, transport in Bristol. Now I know nobody believes this till it happens. I know that it was it's free for a fortnight, so mm-hmm. everybody should Yeah, until the ninth of June. Everybody should go and try it before the ninth of on June. On that one route though. On that one route. 
I know it's late and I think that that is extremely disappointing. And to be honest, I don't know all the reasons because I haven't been that engaged. It's, uh, show me any transport infrastructure project that's not over budget, especially the electrification of the railways and everything else. You know, it hasn't I mean, even this, happened this here is, yet. So. And it hasn't <laughs> even happened. So it's, it, it is over budget, but in a relatively, relatively small amount compared with... 30 million. Yes. Yeah, which is a relatively yeah. small amount when you're talking about hundreds of millions of transport infrastructure. I know there are some... Um, teething problems with some of the corners and things that have to be adjusted. I don't think it's as dramatic as some of the media have made out or been led to believe. I think that it's uh, tens of thousands of pounds of bits of correction that need to be done on certain routes and and uh, hopefully the snagging. Yeah. I think is the, it's yeah. sort of big <laughs> snagging, but snagging in architectural terms. Um, so I think people will be surprised that it does take a bit more traffic off the roads, which has got to be a good thing. I think, you know, some of the areas that Paul has been talking about are going to be served by certainly the next route coming from South Bristol. I think that that is going to improve people's connection to the city and other communities. It's not what I would dream of in terms of public transport but it'll be a certain improvement on mm. what we've got. Talking of South Bristol, how? what are your feelings on this missing road, this missing route, where it was meant to go along the South Bristol Link Road and yeah, that has well, quietly think, been taken yeah, off the map? What, what we did as a city and as the combined authority was build routes to enable bus companies to bid to use those routes. And I understand that the first routes have been bid for, but the uh, that that there are not any operators currently pushing to use that route. Um, so it's um, it, I think it's not a failure in terms of the infrastructure. That's um, a commercial failure, and it, I think it it puts into question the fact that we do have public transport that is so dependent on commercial. Mm decisions and is not social public transport you know public transport was invented as a as a as a social service and uh, I think we do need to review that in places because it does feel uh, certainly there's a sense in South Bristol that first essentially have a monopoly in the area and they've cherry-picked the most profitable routes and the South Bristol link road which many would argue is very uh, necessary in terms of um, the movement of people hasn't been taken up and perhaps there should be some form of subsidy or, yeah, or well, something. Well, there's always been some subsidy for some of the uh, routes that don't but work commercially. But not on Metrobus. Um, I think that uh, not yet. Um, it will be interesting to see. But, I mean, as Paul knows only too well, we're, you know, local government is at the raw end of, uh, of, um, of government cost savings. And uh, so our ability to subsidise these things is thoroughly reduced, which would lead us on to a much bigger subject about the funding of cities, which mm. should be, uh, we should look to France and other, and Germany and other countries in Europe as to how our cities are funded because they produce wonderful public transport that's economical and efficient. And so, Paul, can I ask you about Metrobus? And in particular, oh, that's I thought South... I was getting away with it. No, no, no. 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 <laughs> and in particular, that South Bristol Link Road route. Yeah. Well, as as has been said, no operator has offered to run that route yet. We as the council aren't offering a subsidy. I mean, bus subsidies transfer to Weka. They may choose to offer a subsidy or wait till it's it's commercial. In in some respects, it comes back, you know, to the issue of housing density in that you need to have enough people in an area to use a service to make it work. But I think also, you know, the problem is public transport's very expensive. You're going backwards and forwards to the city every day. That's not far off £100 a month mm. to to use the, the existing services. And although two weeks free on the metro bus, but a lot of people are in this position where they can't really afford public transport and they can't really afford to run a car either. And really public transport should be affordable to people on, on lower incomes. I mean, you've already got a situation where the trains, whilst the usage of trains generally has risen, it tends to be the the province of middle classes because mm. train fares are so expensive. 
you know, peak time return to London is over £200 mm. from Bristol now. But, so would you advocate a kind of TfL Transport for London style system for either Bristol or, or the Wecker region as a whole? Yeah, I think I think it would have to be for the wider area mm. because, you know, Bristol as a, as a city within its boundary, you know, makes no sense at all for, mm. for planning uh, transport and, and other things as well. Um, so, yes, I think that we, you know, some sort of empowered transport authority. But coming back to the wider points of Metrobus, you know, Metrobus is a small piece in the jigsaw. It's not the whole picture. You know, we, we've got rail infrastructure in in this city, which is not being used at the moment. Mm-hmm. We're not just not just the Ports headline that we talked about before, but the the link round, you know, what's used to be called the Henry Loops, now called yes. the Henry Spur. There's also, you know, there's a, there's a station which isn't open up at Ashley Down. There's another one in Brislington that's not open. Mm. Um, there's possibility to open a new station in, in Ashton. We need to make much better use of the existing infrastructure, not just looking to build more infrastructure. I mean, when I was a, a student back 30, 30 plus years ago in Newcastle, so, you know, it's been there for a long time. They turned a lot of their rail infrastructure into their metro system, which was incredibly well used mm-hmm. and was, up until 86, integrated with the bus network as well, really, really effectively. So you get on a bus, go to a metro station, get the metro to where you want to. If you needed to get on a bus at the end of it with, 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 one, with one ticket, it was incredibly reliable because it didn't, it didn't run on the roads and and people in in Newcastle loved it. And once it was established, then you can extend it. So when I was there, it didn't go out to the airport. Now it does go out to the airport. It also goes to Sunderland and to into and to other places. And and I can see why you know when when Marvin came in and looked at transport, the question he asked is, well, all these things that you're asking for for the transport strategy, will that solve Bristol's transport problems? To which the answer was no. Uh, so he said, well, why aren't we looking for a solution which will tackle our transport uh, problems, which is why he started looking at mass transit within Bristol. I mean, it's been called underground, but actually I think what he's advocated most of it is is Light overground um, yes. and, and using a sort of rail-based system. But to if be you fair, never, he, if you he initially never look at that, called it an underground, yeah. so that's why we've but, been calling it an but underground. But if you, if you never start looking at those solutions, you never get them. We know everything takes 20 years to happen or within longer. Bristol yeah. or we've been We've been looking at rail-based solutions yeah. for many years but, and, but uh, we need and there will be, I think there will be some... I think the next big round of investment following Metrobus mm. will be in mm. in suburban rail. And uh, I think we're not ambitious enough, and I agree about that. But on the other hand, we've got to be realistically ambitious. Otherwise, mm. we'll spend money on uh, on getting nowhere. Mm. Mm. But you look at how much has been pumped into Crossrail in London. If you look at the, oh, the yes. capita amount yeah. of money that's gone into public transport systems in London compared to the regions, I mean... We're not even a, a pea on the plate in mm. terms of the amount of resource that's gone in. And I think that it's an issue not just for Bristol, but for, for all of the cities to be getting much more investment in their mm. infrastructure. But if you go if you go to Manchester, this weekend I was in Nottingham, Newcastle, I've already mentioned, you do feel really, really jealous. Mm. Yeah, I feel really angry, actually. And I got really angry with government and uh, with Network Rail in the... Uh, cancellation or postponement of the electrification Mm. uh, from London to Bristol and to Cardiff because it's a fraction of the cost of the HS2 project and we're left on a branch line that's not a very efficient branch line. We're not properly connected with the north, with Birmingham. In fact, that's a pretty lousy route. Mm. I think there is a real danger to this region because government have not taken us as seriously mm. as they have the North. But and, in fact, going and full I feel circle, we, we should be really beating the mm. drum about that. And I say to the Metro Mayor, this is your job. Well, they... Get on and and make a, fight the government over it. It may be your government, but you as an individual need to show your where your loyalty lies. Your loyalty lies to the metropolitan region of Bristol and this is a major issue. Just to put a, a bit of a caveat on that, we really do need to get to grips with the housing situation. Otherwise, you know, Bristol will 
you know, it's happening to a certain extent. I think we we get 4,000 people move to Bristol a year from London at the moment is that we end up creating a housing bubble because of the transport link to London. And we, we need to, housing and transport cannot be solved separately. And we do need to address the lack of housing in this area. Otherwise, we get the link to London. What we see is huge house price inflation. Uh, within the city that we haven't sort of dealt with. And so, you know, we'd all like electrification. And I agree with George, the line that goes Bristol, Birmingham, Manchester, Glasgow is a terrible line mm-hmm. to, to travel on. Um, and getting that sorted would, would be great. The one to London, whilst it would be great to get to London in, in 45 minutes, what that does is makes the danger is it makes Bristol a commuter city to London. An, an hour and 20 minutes would be good. Well, I get there an hour yeah. and 25 from Parkway. Yeah. It's to, it, the electrification could make Parkway 45 minutes from Paddington. And that, that does make the north of Parkway Bristol a, mm. a commuter belt uh, of London. When we look at these things, it's really important that we look at them holistically and mm-hmm. I'm not saying don't electrify the railways. Electrification of the railways has got to come. Um, it's really it's really important for the city. But we can't just electrify and not deal with the housing mm. problem either. And I, the last thing I want to do is live in a commuter belt. Totally. And I think Bristol has been really good at defending itself from being a satellite of London. You know, we are the first stop west of London, that it can call itself a real independent mm. city. I mean, even Bath looks to London. Swindon definitely looks to London. Mm. I absolutely agree with, with with Paul. We should hold on to that. You know, Bristol mm. is its own place and long may it be so. But I think with some of the northern northern fringe of the city and those areas around Filton and the Charlton Hayes development, some of those I have noticed are being marketed as commutable to London. Mm. So even... I think already that that process has begun. Yeah, but if I lived up there, I'd want to go to London. Oh, I want to go to anywhere but there. <laughs> I mean, that you know, there is a danger that we provo- we make some pretty bland places sure. in, that are not real city. Then I would excuse anybody mm. going, but preferably mm. they enrich Bristol. And with within a recent Weka report, it was saying that the southwest has been underfunded, and especially in terms of transport and well, we're a net contributor to the Treasury, this just isn't acceptable. But no, nothing's changing, nothing is happening. How do, you, how do you solve that? How do you square that circle? Well, we just have to be, you know, we have to be in there with the decision makers and uh, that is the point of having, uh, to having the metropolitan area, to having the combined authorities to give us a voice. You'll hear Birmingham shouting loud, you'll hear Manchester shouting loud. I'd like to hear the, uh, the, the Bristol City region, as I call it, because I don't know where the west of England is. Uh, <laughs> I'd like to hear the Bristol City region don't say shouting loud to be given the, the proper connections. But it's not, about, it's not about commuting. It is about having proper connection between London and Bristol and Bristol and Paris. Mm. You know, um, as somebody uh, jokingly said, it would um, enable... Parisians to come and spend romantic weekends in Bristol. <laughs> what a thought. <laughs> and on that note, I will say thank you both of you for joining me today. Thank, thank you. you <laughs> So there you have it. And I hoped you enjoyed that conversation with George and Paul as much as I did. Remember, you can follow us on Twitter at Ballots Podcast. And you can rate, review and most importantly, subscribe at the Apple Podcasting app or any other podcasting provider. So many thanks for listening. And don't forget to join us next week when we will have Conservative group leader in Bristol, Mark Weston, and former Green politician, Tony Dyer. So until next week, goodbye.